Alright, open your Bible this morning to Acts chapter 16. And we started last week a little mini-series we're going to do that kind of leads us up to uh, the holidays. And uh, we'll, we'll do some special stuff throughout the holidays. But we're doing a little mini-series entitled, When Life Seems Unlivable. While you're finding your place in Acts 16, let me read you something that, um, that I got not too long ago from the Center for Disease Control's report entitled Understanding Suicide Fact Sheet for 2012. The Center for Disease Control reported this in this report. Every year, 36,000, approximately 36,000 Americans will commit suicide and take their own lives. The shocking thing to me was this same report also reported that while 36,000 people every year will take their own lives right here in America, 374,000 other people will try and fail. Not think about it, but actually attempt to take their own life. Swallowing pills that somebody caught them in time and pumped their stomach. A gunshot that maimed them for the rest of their life but did not kill them. A jump to their death that crushed their body but did not take their life. 374,000 people right here in the greatest country on the face of the earth every year will try and kill themselves and not succeed. While 36,000 will actually succeed. As I read that, I began to think, why? Why? Why would a human being who lives in America and, I mean, it's not as if we live in a third world country where there's war all the time and severe poverty is the norm. And I mean, we're, we're blessed beyond any nation on the face of the earth with things and circumstances and opportunities. Why would almost 400,000 people a year in this great country come to a place where they think life is no longer livable. Well, I began to look through the Bible, and you know, the truth is there were a lot of people in the Bible that came to the same conclusion. As a matter of fact, there are several people in the Bible that actually were part of the 36,000, so to speak, and they succeeded. King Saul committed suicide, fell upon his own sword, and killed himself. Several others, Judas, committed suicide when he hung himself. There were several throughout the Bible. However, those really, they help us to learn what path not to go down. But actually, in dealing with people right now who are struggling with depression or struggling with life to the point to where it's almost unlivable, what I wanted to know from the Bible was where are all those people in the Bible who got to the point where they wanted to and then God stopped them and kept them from doing it and their life turned around and everything was great. So that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We started last week with me sharing my own personal story of coming to that place and almost doing that and becoming one of the 36,000 that actually succeeded. And God, almost 17 years ago, stopped me, and here I am today. I'm a happy guy. I love life. I really like the eating part of life. 
And I just enjoy what I do. Do I still have difficulty? Absolutely. Do I still have days when I wish my life was different? All the time. I mean, that's just part of life. However, what was it that kept me from doing that? What was it that kept these people in the Bible? Well, that's what we want to look at over the next few weeks. And we're going to start today with our first guy, the Philippian jailer. And in each one of these people that I found, and there are about five or six of them, in each one of these people, there was a common reason why they got to this point. And so that's what we want to do each week. We're going to look at the common reason why they got to this place where they wanted to die. And then what was it that happened to them that stopped them and changed their life? Okay? First of all, as we begin today, look at Acts chapter 16, verse number 16. And let's read this story. Acts 16, 16. The Bible says, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners of fortune telling. And this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. By the way, interesting fact. You notice this is being written... Um, by someone who keeps referring to himself. Uh, once, verse 16, when we were going, um, down he says um, in verse 17, this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting. Does anybody know who wrote the book of Luke? I mean, uh, the book of Acts? <laughs> who? Luke. This is Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles. So Luke is with Paul and Silas. There was a group of them together, and Luke is recording all of this. So here's what happens. There's this girl who has the demonic ability of fortune telling. And by the way, if you ever see that today, it's not a hoax. It's not a joke. These people really, many of them, have a supernatural ability to quote foresee through demonic means things in the future. Do they always tell the truth? No. Because Satan is the father of lies. And he is the source of their supernatural knowledge. Let me just warn you, you don't want to play with that. You don't want to get anywhere near it. You want to stay as far away from it as you can. But it is not a joke. It's not a hoax. It happened all through the Bible. And it's happening right here. By the way, like Ed mentioned this morning, this is New Testament. This is not Old Testament. This is happening in the New Testament. Okay? So there's this girl. She has this ability to tell fortune. And Paul shows up and tells her how to get saved. Now, if her ability to tell fortune is coming from Satan, and she gets saved, then what's going to happen to that? See you later. No more telling of the fortunes. Because now she's following a different God. Who says, trust me for your future. Don't worry about the future. I will take care of you. Now, the issue here was, there was a mafia-type group among the people there who used these women and men that could do this to make money. It was just like the drug trade or prostitution or gambling or anything else that the mafias of today, the, the crime syndicates of today, used to make money. They were using this girl to make money. Well, Paul comes along. And let's keep reading. You're going to see what happens. Verse 18. 
She kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. Now her demonic ability to tell the future is gone. Verse 19. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, did you mess with the wrong syndicate? They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And I always thought it was interesting. They never said the reason that we really got them here is because they screwed up our way of making money. They messed up this girl over here. Now we can't make money no more. They had to find some kangaroo court way of getting them convicted and thrown into prison to get them out of the way. And that's what's happened here. By the way, I want you to notice bad things have always happened to good people. That's just part of life. Okay? Let's keep going. Um, Verse number 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer, here's our guy, was commanded to guard them carefully. Now remember who these people are and who they've offended. I mean, these are powerful people in the area. So you don't want to make these people mad. So this jailer has been commanded. Take these two guys... Lock them down and make sure they stay there. I mean, this is a very, very serious responsibility this guy's been given. Okay, let's keep going, verse 24. Upon receiving such orders, he, our guy, flipping jailer, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, I, I got this very serious responsibility. I better make sure these dudes don't have any chance at all. In getting out of here. He took them into the inner cell, not one of the outer ones around the outside where they could see out a barred window. The inner cell locked their feet in stocks so they can't even get up. Slammed the door shut, locked it. Verse 25. I want you to see what Paul and Silas did because in a minute when we look at the answer to why this guy didn't ultimately kill himself, verse 25 begins the key as to why he didn't do it. Verse 25, about midnight, by the way, I, I looked at that. These two guys have been through a long day. I mean, it's midnight. They have been beaten. They have been dragged and gone through all kinds of emotional turmoil. And now they're in a prison locked up at midnight. And what was their crime? They just told a girl about Jesus to help her get her life back on track. So it wouldn't be destroyed by Satan. That's all they did. And so at midnight, I would venture to say I would either be asleep, crying, complaining, or one of several other common options. I don't think what we're about to read would have been on my options list. I'm just being honest. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. 
I might have been doing that. But they were singing hymns. And they were doing it to God. Interesting, they weren't blaming God for where they were, although it was doing what God told them to do that got them there. But they never blamed God. And then the Bible says, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I thought that was interesting. Everybody's listening. Everybody in the same situation they're in, and the rest of the prisoners were probably not as in a severe a situation as they were, but they're noticing Paul and Silas and their response to all of this is totally different than everybody else there because it doesn't say the rest of the prisoners joined in. It said they were all listening. So evidently nobody else in there was doing what they were doing. Then notice what happens in verse 26. Here's where it gets interesting. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison was shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Not just Paul and Silas. Everybody. And obviously there are other prisoners in there because the Bible says the other prisoners were listening to them. So there's lots of people in there. All the doors came open. Everybody's chains fell off. Now I want you to notice verse 27 in the very first phrase because this begins the key to why this jailer wanted to kill himself. Verse 27. The jailer woke up. Uh-oh. Dude, you're supposed to be guarding these guys and you fell asleep. When he woke up, violent earthquake, throws all the doors open, chains come off. I've known people who could literally sleep through an earthquake. Evidently, he wasn't one. He woke up. Notice what the Bible says. He saw. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open. Notice, he never saw a prisoner. He just saw the doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why? Because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now, I want, you, I want you to stay with me for a minute because I want to show you something that I believe causes lots of people to pull that trigger. And then everybody around them afterwards realized, you know, they pulled that trigger for no reason because the reason they thought they couldn't make it in life. wasn't even true. It wasn't even true. The Bible says that the jailer had been tasked with guarding these guys. He fell asleep. When he woke up, all the doors were open. And here's where it starts. He began to assume. He assumed everybody was gone. In a minute, you'll see that was not the case. He assumed everybody was gone. And because he knew who these people were and what his task was and why they were there and who they had offended, he said, I'd be better off to go ahead and just kill myself now because if I don't, what they're going to do to me may be a whole lot worse. Every bit of it based upon the assumption of failure. Today, we're going to talk about when life becomes unlivable because of assumed failure. So let me ask you this. Have you ever failed at anything? Who hasn't? Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. I mean, we all have, haven't we? You stop and think about this. And I was reading about um, Thomas Edison, you know, the dude that been the light bulb. 
In reading, if you read his story, it talks about the thousands of times he tried and failed before he actually accidentally stumbled upon what became the filament and created the light bulb. Thousands of times he tried and failed. We, failure is a part of life. And he, here's the concept I want us to think about. Is it real failure or is it just that we did not accomplish what we hoped to accomplish, but if I learned something that made me better, was it really a failure? Or was it a learning experience that kept me from doing it again? You know, fool me once, shame on me. Uh, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Failures, mistakes, they're all a part of life. But if I learn from them, then they become valuable parts of life, not reasons to end my life. This guy was about to take his own life because he looked at himself based upon what was going on in his life and he assumed, I'm a failure, I'm worthless, I don't deserve to live, so I'm not going to anymore. So let me give you some things that I hope will help us today and then we're going to be done. All right, Two things real quick about the facts of difficulty and failures in life. Number one, difficulty is a part of life. Life was never meant to be lived with everything going right. Let me give you some verses. In James chapter 1, Verses 2 through 4. James tells us that we're to count it all joy when we fall into different kinds of trials. I mean, not only is difficulty a part of life, but we're supposed to get excited about it. Because it's through those difficulties that God builds character in our life. Uh, Willie, my son-in-law and I were talking about this coming to church this morning. I was reading um, some material about developing discipleship and mentor programs. And one of the statements that was made that described what a discipleship program was... What well, it is a program to create the character of Christ in others. Because the character of Christ produces the conduct of Christ. In other words, I don't need to focus on outwardly doing the things Jesus did. What I need to focus on is inwardly being the kind of person that he was. Loving and being kind and compassionate and merciful and humble and giving and serving and a hard worker if I have those character traits in my life, the conduct just happens. And I think too many times we focus so much on the outward part that we lose sight of what really creates the outward part. That's why we get so frustrated. Because we're trying to be somebody that inwardly we're not. Doesn't mean that the person we're not trying to be is not the person we ought to be. But we're going about it all wrong. I need to fix the inside of me. Like Ed said this morning, I need to love people the way God loves people. When I love people the way God loves people, then I hate those things that hurt people. That's an inward thing. So difficulty is a part of life. By the way, in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3, you know what the Bible says about Jesus? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Even Jesus faced difficulty, obviously. He was beaten. He was run through a kangaroo court and convicted of a crime he did not commit, similar to Paul and Silas. He sweat great drops of blood in the garden and then died on a Roman cross and paid for our sins. I'd say he faced some difficulty. But you know what the great thing is? The end of that story is an empty tomb and eternal, eternal salvation for every one of us. But he had to go through that difficulty to get to that. So difficulty is part of life. Number two, God will give us peace in difficulty. In John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus said this, In this world you will have difficulties, trials, tribulations, and troubles. But be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. 
It's going to happen. Don't wake up tomorrow morning thinking that you're never going to have problems in life. Because we are. We're all going to face difficulties. But Jesus said, I have overcome the world that is creating your difficulties so you can make it through those difficulties. All right, now let's look at the Philippian jailer. What caused his suicidal attempt? Let me give you three things I observed. And I think hopefully this will be helpful to you. Number one, he was ready to commit suicide, first of all, because his perception of success was defined by his outward circumstances. His perception of success was defined by his outward circumstances. He assumed he had failed because of his circumstances. Earthquake, fell asleep, doors open, don't see any prisoners. My outward appearance seems to create this idea, I'm a failure. When the reality was, and we'll read it in a minute, that the guys were all still there. He had not failed at all. Had he made some mistakes? Sure. I don't think falling asleep on the job was part of the job description. Yeah, he made some mistakes. But you know what? God takes our mistakes, and we all make mistakes. And he uses them. It was, as you'll see in a minute, that mistake that caused him to fall at the feet of Paul and ask, what do I need to do to get my life straightened out? What do I need to do to get saved? Because had that earthquake happened, and he opened his eyes, and all the gates still be closed, and everybody still be locked up, he would have thought, hey, I'm still the man. I haven't done anything wrong. I, I'm not in trouble. So if I'm not in trouble, I don't need help. It was actually that mistake that brought him to the place where he came to know Christ. Second thing, not only was his perception of success defined by his outward circumstances, but number two, he thought he was in control of his own success. He thought he was in control of it. What happened that night, he could not control. You think he could have controlled that earthquake? Then he might could have controlled the fall asleep part. I don't know, maybe he had a rough day. Maybe he could you ever been in them places in class? Where you did your best to hold your eyes open and it felt like somebody had just poured three layers of concrete on your eyelids. And I've been in it many times. Many times. Uh, you know, all, all them real exciting, I won't tell the subjects because some of you guys like them subjects, but I slept through many a class. Okay? That's probably why I ain't so good at English. I might have missed that day, you know. But, I mean, sometimes we get to that point. Alright? We just get tired. Maybe he was. I don't know. But he could not control the earthquake. Where did that come from? God. God is in control of everything. Let me give you some verses. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 24, the Bible says that the same power that allows God to raise a human being from the dead is the very same power that he uses to bring everything under his control. There is nothing in this life that God ever looks at and says, I can't control that. Ever. And if you and I really stop and think about that, every single situation in my life, God allowed it to be there. Because if He didn't want it to be there, He has the ability to keep it from being there. Now, sometimes those situations come about because of my mistakes. But He still allows it. He can stop it if He wants to. He doesn't. He allows it. So there is a reason, just like this. There was a reason for that earthquake. And it wasn't just to get Paul and Silas out. 
Because as you'll see in a minute, it didn't get Paul and Silas out. As a matter of fact, after the earthquake was over, all the prisoners were still in. The earthquake was not meant for Paul and Silas. The earthquake was meant for the Philippian jailer. And he could not control that. So first of all, he thought he was a failure. First of all, because his perception of success had to do with his outward circumstances. That's not the case. Number two, he also thought he was a failure, but he thought he controlled his success. We don't. God controls everything about our life. And number three, he thought it was a failure because of a personal mistake he had made. He fell asleep. You know what? If you stop and think about this, and, and I'm telling you this because I don't want you to beat yourself up when you make personal mistakes. The truth is, without Jesus Christ, do you know what we all amount to? A great big giant zero rubbed out. We're nothing. We're all a bunch of we're just a pile of bones and skin created by mistake. We're just a bunch of mistakes. That's all we are without God. He gives human life meaning. Without Him, there is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no reason to live. He is the one that makes our life worth something. And because He's what makes my life worth something, then it doesn't matter how many mistakes I make. Because he's still the one that makes me valuable. And the Bible says that he made us valuable while we were yet sinners. Because that's when he died for us. So look, we all want to do the right thing. And I'm not telling you to go out here and just screw up all the time because it's okay. I'm not telling you that. We we want to do the right thing. But we're human. We're going to make mistakes. But you're still valuable. Don't beat yourself up because you made a mistake. We all do it. Right? So why does this guy, he, he's ready to kill himself. He's got his sword out. He's ready to die. And he says, the reason I'm going to die, number one, he said, look at my circumstances. I am a failure. Number two, I was supposed to keep those guys locked up. I was in control of all of that. And, and I failed at that. And I made a personal mistake that now is going to cost me my life. None of that's true. Why? All right, what was it that stopped him? What was it that kept him from killing himself? All right, I want you to look back at Acts chapter 16. And we began in verse 25 with Paul and Silas singing. Uh, Verse 26, the earthquake. Verse 27, the jailer wakes up. He's ready to kill himself. Now look at verse 28. Here's the scene. Jailer's got his sword out. He's ready to shove it into his chest. Verse 28. But Paul shouted. Don't harm yourself. Stop. We're all still here. Your assumption is wrong. Verse 27, he was going to kill himself because he thought they all escaped. Paul said, stop. Don't harm yourself. We're still here. Your assumption is wrong. You're not a failure. We're still here. Now look at what he said. Verse 29. The jailer called for lights. Why? Because it was dark. It was a dungeon. He couldn't see. That's why when he woke up, he couldn't see that they were all still in their cells. And out of that darkness, a voice came. And it was Paul. 
Don't harm yourself. You know what? Sometimes in the deepest, darkest parts of our life is where we hear the voice of God the most clear. Saying, don't harm yourself. I know you think you're in this darkness all alone, but you're not. I'm still here. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm still here. At the moment he heard that voice, verse 29, the jailer called for lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Now he's in a place in his heart where he needs help. And that's why the Bible says he's trembling. He then brought them out and as he went in, he fell down in front of them. Then he brought them out, probably into the uh, into the court area that surrounded, where the cell surrounded, so he could see them where the light was brighter. He calls them out and he says this, Sir, what must I do to be saved? You know, I ask myself the question, how did he know to ask that? How did he even know what that was? They were saying it outside the prison. They were saying it inside the prison. And there was the evidence of the girl who was the reason they landed in prison in the first place. Evidently, this guy knew. Just like Andrew said. Evidently, they, they must have, he must have known all this. And he said, whatever it is that you guys have got, I need that. And notice what happened. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. I personally think that he talked to the guy in the inner court of the prison and the other prisoners heard what he was saying, just like they heard him singing. But I want you to notice, I think also that something else happened, verse 33. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, then immediately he and all his family were baptized. I think more than likely the jailer either lived in some chambers attached to the prison or very near it. Because the Bible says he took them out into wherever his family was, he cleaned them up, and then he and all of his family got baptized. So there had to be some place for them to baptize them. And I'm sure it wasn't inside that jail cell. Then the Bible says... Verse 34, the jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Huge difference in the scene in this verse and the scene a few verses earlier where he had a sword out ready to kill himself. What made the difference? What changed his whole outlook on life? Between the verse where he's ready to kill himself, verse 27, and verse 34, where he's filled with joy with his whole life. There's two things. I'm going to give you this, and we're going to be done. Number one, he witnessed real Christianity. Then when did he witness it? In verse 25. He witnessed real Christianity. You know people all around us that are hurting, that think that life is not worth living, that think that life is hopeless. You know the first thing that's going to get their attention and cause them to think that there's true hope in life when they see those who call themselves Christians acting like real Christians. Not church goers who hold a Bible for about an hour and a half on Sunday. 
I noticed three things about Paul and Silas that I believe help describe real Christianity. Let me give you these three things. Number one, their praise was not changed by their problems. Their trust and their praise and their thankfulness and their devotion to God didn't change because they were in problems. You know, there's a lot of Christians that we love God when everything's going good and when everything starts going bad, all of a sudden, God's the bad guy. And our devotion to God, our praise for God, our service to God, our, our prayer to God, our study of God's Word, our desire to be like Him, that all just kind of flies out the window because now i got problems. i, I got to handle my problems. It's no wonder we got a lost world that thinks that Christianity is just another religion. If Christianity can't help me when I'm having problems, what good is it? What good is it? Anybody can handle life when everything's going good. Number two, I know something else about it. Their purpose was more important than their personal gain. Their purpose. By the way, what was their purpose? To tell people about Christ. That was more important than their own personal gain. What am I referring to? I'm referring to that earthquake and those doors flying open and those chains flying off. They could have left. And that would have obviously been outwardly a much better situation for them than staying in the prison. But their purpose was more important than their own personal gain. You know, a lot of times as believers, we want to live for God and serve God and do what's right and follow the Lord and be faithful to Him as long as it helps me get what I want. But the moment that following God means I've got to give something up or I can't do something I want to do, then all of a sudden my personal gain becomes more important than God's purpose in my life. And Ed said it this morning. The only place to really find true joy is in the middle of God's purpose for your life. Um, sometimes on Sunday morning I'll get up and I'll watch uh, Charles Stanley in touch. And... Um, is interesting because this morning at the end of their broadcast, they're they're doing this thing where they're celebrating 35 years of ministry for Dr. Stanley. And at the end of the broadcast, they broadcast one of his uh, TV messages from church in 1981. Uh, he looks almost like Andy back then. Unbelievable. But he said almost the same thing. He said, you know, the only time to know true joy in life is in the middle of God's purpose for your life because that's how God planned it. My personal gain cannot become more important than God's purpose for my life. And sometimes that can be challenged. Number three. A third thing I think they did, and this jailer saw all this, was their compassion for this man was more important than their own comfort. Sometimes our love and compassion to help other people has to become more important than our own personal comfort. Those of you that have been on mission trips to third world countries where you have yourself had to live in circumstances and environments that are not what you were used to at home. You know a little bit of what this is like. Your compassion for sharing Christ with those people becomes more important than your own personal comfort. What if God asked us to go through something in our life that would remove some of the comforts we enjoy in order to put us into a situation like he did with Paul and Silas? The Philippian jailer and his family would have never come to know Christ if Paul and Silas had not ended up in that jail cell. And to get to that jail cell, 
They had to be falsely accused, stripped, beaten, and thrown into a nasty jail, locked in stocks, in order to tell one man and his family about Jesus. Now, when you get to heaven, I want one of the things that you do after you get there, among all the things we want to do. Find the Philippian jailer. Let him introduce you to his family. And ask him, was it worth it for Paul and Silas to have to get through that? Then find Paul and Silas, because they're going to be there. Ask them the same question. For the rest of eternity, Paul and Silas will see that jailer and his family walking the street of gold in heaven with all of us when we get there. And for the rest of eternity, they're going to know that little bit of discomfort was worth it. What is real Christianity? It's when our praise and devotion to God becomes more important than our problem. It's when our purpose, God's purpose for my life, is more important than my personal gain and my compassion for people becomes more important than my own personal comfort. That's real Christianity. That's when people notice there's something different about that person. They've got something I don't have. That's why Jesus said we're the salt of the earth. We need to make people thirsty for what we've got. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, in other words, we don't make people thirsty for anything, Jesus said then we're no good. Do we make people thirsty? Sometimes these, these difficulties, these assumed failures are what cause and bring about those opportunities. Then there's one other thing. He witnessed real Christianity. And then finally, the obvious. He personally experienced Christianity for himself. When he asked, what do I need to do? They told him. He did it. His family got baptized. And that's what made the difference. Because in verse number 34, the Bible says he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. And his whole family. So, are there going to be times in your life when you're going to feel like a failure? I have those times. I'll be honest. Over these last, this last nine to thirteen months of all that our family's been going through and, and what we believe God's asked us to do, I have never, I don't think, been attacked emotionally as severely as I have in the last year and a half. If I told you how many times, not only I wanted to quit, but I tried to quit, and God wouldn't let me, you wouldn't believe it, and you would think. Bill's just a big coward. He's a big failure. I mean, there's lots of comforts we're, we're letting go of. There's lots of personal gain we released. And I will be honest, there's a lot of times our praise gets really, really weak because of our problems. Every one of these guys that I'm writing about and I'm going to tell you about in these next several weeks, I have experienced every single one of these things. And that's why I know it's real. Because I actually started writing and studying these guys because I was going through it. I was starting to think those thoughts of 17 years ago. Is it, did I really make a mistake, God? Am I a failure? 
And of course, God continues to remind me, no, you're not. As long as you're where I want you to be, you're never a failure. Difficult? Yep. But not a failure. So anybody you see, show them real Christianity and introduce them to the Jesus you know. And when they personally meet Him for themselves, then all of a sudden, this idea that life is unlivable changes. Because the Philippian jailer went from jabbing a sword in his chest to experiencing joy with his whole family because Jesus gave them hope again. And He'll do the same for us. Father, 